What will be your legacy? Deep down, most, if not all of us, want to leave a good legacy, right? A legacy that is meaningful. A legacy that is faithful. Now, we typically think about legacies in the context of a graveside service or of a memorial service or on the anniversary of one who has gone before us. Many of you are aware that my, my dear mother passed away a little over a year ago, and we gathered around her graveside. We gathered for memorial service to share legacy memories about her, her character, her convictions, her desire to love God and love others. I heard of brothers and sisters earlier this week and the previous week sharing legacy memories about our dear brother, Tim Delgado. Later today, we are going to gather to share legacy memories about a long-term, long-standing former member of this church, Glenavie, who is now seeing Christ as he is. But I want us to see right now, in this moment, that from my mom to Tim to Glenavie, their legacy started way before their passing. Way before their passing. See, what we are going to be known for later is what we are known for today. A faithful legacy starts in the present. It starts now. It starts with how we speak and live and act and what we believe today. And this not only pertains to our individual lives, it also pertains to us collectively here as a church at EBC. Every church has and will have a legacy. So what are we known for? What is, will be, should be our legacy here at EBC? Well, with these questions on the tip of our minds and our hearts, let me invite you to open to 1 Timothy. It is in the New Testament. This morning, we are going to be wrapping up our occasional series through 1 Timothy. We're going to be living in chapter 6 today. If you don't have a Bible, you could find one under a chair near you. You'll be helped to keep your Bible open to this chapter today. Please follow along as I read. This is, hands down, the best part of the sermon this morning. Right here. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit, understands nothing. 
He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of God for the church right now, here and now. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd bless your word this morning, that you would feed us from it and teach us from it, that we would be reformed, conformed to the image of Jesus by it. We ask that this would not be another morning, another passage, another service, but that we would leave changed by your word. I ask that you would help me get out of the way so that we may behold Jesus more clearly this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if 1 Timothy was on the New York Times bestseller list, it would be called a manual for flourishing church. It is a letter, as we have seen in the previous messages about what a flourishing and healthy church believes and how it behaves. And thus far in the letter, we have discovered that a flourishing church, first and foremost, protects the entrusted message of the gospel. We saw this in chapter one. We also saw that a flourishing church prioritizes prayer, the payment, which is the gospel, and is committed to purposeful complementary roles in public worship. We saw this in chapter two. It also has Christ-like leadership and lives out the truth of the gospel together. We saw this in chapter three. It also perceives unsound doctrine and persists in sound doctrine. We saw this in chapter four. It also cultivates a culture of care, 
amongst the spiritual family for sufferers and for shepherds, the pastors of the church. We saw all of this in chapter five. And now we arrive this morning at chapter six, where we discover that a flourishing church fights the good fight of the faith together. A flourishing church fights the good fight of the faith together. And Paul makes this point and upholds this point in this chapter by giving us a battle cry for the church to engage in its faithful calling. In verses 1 through 2, with faithful contentment in verses 3 through 10, and with faithful commitment in verses 11 through 21. So point one, a faithful calling. Look with me there at verses one and two once again. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Well, we found earlier in the chapter, earlier in this book really, in chapter three, that Paul would love to come visit Timothy. He would love to come visit the church of Ephesus, but he might be delayed. And so he writes with this purpose. He writes in advance with this purpose that the church may know how it ought to behave as the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And Paul has just addressed the whole household, men, women, young men, young women, widows, shepherds in chapter five. And though he addresses masters in other letters, Elsewhere in the New Testament, here he turns his attention to the bondservants or slaves within the church. And according to historical stats, there were over and around 60 million bondservants or slaves in the Roman Empire. Bondservants made up a significant majority of the population and of the church. It was a large class of people that made a living, provided for themselves through service. Now, Paul is not speaking of slaves or slavery in a southern antebellum or chattel slavery way here. That kind of slavery is a blemish in our world history, particularly here in the West. That's not the kind of slavery he's talking about. Further, this is not an endorsement of slavery, but rather It is a call for bondservants to live and to serve faithfully in the place that they are serving as the people of God. In principle, it's a call to Christians, all Christians who work under an employer, to faithfulness in the workplace. It's a call to consider a boss, as verse 1 says, worthy of honor. An honor that adorns Jesus and the work of the gospel in your life. Similar to the way we are called to honor spiritual widows and family and pastors. This is a call to working Christians to also not slack off or to presume on the faith of their boss. As it says there in verse 2. 
but to serve well and pursue good work ethic for their good, for the good of their employer, for the glory of Jesus. This is a call to working Christians to live a life worthy of their calling in the workplace so that, as it says there at the end of verse one, the name of God and the teaching of God, his word, may not be reviled, hated, or criticized. Paul is getting at the heart of authentic Christian work here. And this should hit close to home for all of us. Because again, in principle, these verses apply to all of us, all employees, even employers, even the retired this morning. See, how we live is a testimony to what we believe. In many ways, actions speak just as loud as words. And if we are indeed Christians, our life should look like it. To put it into the words of one pastor, Philip Jensen, he says, when we bear the name of Jesus, people will judge our Lord by our behavior. We are to be known by our godly behavior of mutual submission, sacrifice, and service. So how do you think about work? How do you think about your position at work? If you are retired, how are you still working in other areas of your life for the good of others and for the glory of God? No matter your station in life, what or better who do your words, actions profess when you're at work or in the home? Children, yes, dear student in this room, what do your words and actions and work ethic display when you are at school or doing chores in the, at home? To all, brother, sister, no matter your age and stage, Let's fight the good fight of the faith by imitating Jesus who came not to be served, but to what? Serve. Let's work well to the glory of God. Let's remain faithful in our calling with the Spirit's help, with words and actions and all of life, especially in the workplace, that are a sweet testimony, an aroma, a faithful affirmation of the name of Jesus. Oh, perfection is not required. But if you are a Christian, the pursuit is. And so let's walk faithfully in our calling and with faithful contentment. And that leads us to the second point this morning, a faithful contentment. Let's read verses 3 through 10. Once again. If anyone teaches a different Doctrine does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels with, about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among the people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great Gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we had food and clothing, with these will we be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Well, you know that feeling, that experience, that contentment that you get after you've enjoyed a really good meal? Oh, yeah. Or a great night's sleep? Oh, yeah. Or that experience, that contentment you feel when you're with your favorite people in your favorite place? Paul is calling the church here to a far greater contentment than those momentary moments of contentment. And in this section at the close of verse 2 into verse 3, we just read that Paul exhorts Timothy to teach and urge these things. What are these things? Well, it's all that he has said in the letter up until this point and the verses that follow. But most directly, we ought to see this, most directly flowing out of the faithful calling in the section above, here he teaches and urges the church in faithful contentment. A faithful contentment that goes beyond, again, momentary circumstances, but is richly grounded in Jesus, his words, his will, and his way of life. And did you notice the contrast in these verses that we just read? The contrast of faithful contentment compared to, or kind of versus, the wolves, the false teachers in the church that were unfaithfully discontent. And in their discontentedness, as we have found throughout this letter, they were teaching unsound doctrine. They were devoted to myths, genealogies, speculations. They taught salvation through God's law in an ascetic or a rigid, disciplined kind of way. They wandered into vain speculation. They were unqualified leaders compared to chapter 3. They devoted themselves to doctrines of demons. They were liars with seared conscience. They forbid marriage and abstinence from certain foods. They were holding irreverent and silly myths. And they were, according to verse 3 here in this chapter, teaching unsound words, doctrine, that did not align with the sound words of Jesus. Do you notice that comparison? This is the anatomy of a false teacher right here in these, right here in these chapter, in this uh, chapter, in these verses. These are the features of a discontented deceiver with the spirit of antichrist right here. And Paul wants us to see that at the end of the day, at the heart of the false teacher is unfaithful discontentment. These men and women rejected, as it says, verse 3, the good words of Jesus, his teaching, his wisdom, his humility, his gentle and lowly heart. And instead, verse 4, in that rejection of Jesus, they became puffed up and conceited, wisdom deficient. They had discontented hearts with an insatiable hunger for what? Controversy, quarrels. They were filled with envy and dissension and slander, evil suspicions. And according to verse 5, they were constant, in constant friction among people, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And a hallmark of their discontentment was verse 5, using godliness as a means of financial gain. These sought the world and shipwrecked their souls. And we cannot miss this, brothers and sisters. One of the greatest threats to the church today is not from forces outside of it, but from forces inside of it. 
These discontented, disqualified teachers preyed on the people of God and taught a false gospel that was not of God in order to gain shamefully from the people of God. And they still exist today. And so let's take a discernment inventory. Who were you listening to? Who were you reading? Do they hold high the name of Jesus and the finished work of the gospel and his word? Or could it be that they're a discontented deceiver declaring a false gospel of your best life now for three easy payments? By the way, can you imagine that false gospel being preached to Stephen as he's being stoned in Acts chapter 7? Or to Peter as he's being hung upside down? Could it be that they're a discontented deceiver declaring a false gospel of work harder, be better for your salvation. A gospel that defies the words of Jesus when he said what? It is finished. Could it be that they are a discontented deceiver declaring a therapeutic gospel often promoted on Christian radio that is more concerned about felt needs than the penalty for sin paid for in the blood of Jesus and the riches of Scripture? Could it be that they are a discontented deceiver, a prophecy peddler with a more concerned view of world news than faithfulness to the Word of God? Or worse, maybe they're using the Word to promote fear and shameful gain. Who we listen to matters, who we read matters, who we watch on TV and on YouTube matters, where we get our theology matters because one of the greatest threats, again, to the church is not from forces outside of it, but from inside of it. This is Paul's warning in these verses to Timothy and to the church. Oh, we are in spiritual wartime, brothers and sisters. So let's be on guard, faithfully fighting and hold fast to doctrine that is faithfully content and grounded in the words of Jesus. Again, according to the purpose statement of this letter that goes back to chapter 3, verse 15, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. And if we are to remain a pillar and buttress of truth, then we must watch our doctrine and our life together. We must be discerning of the truth together. We must know the words of Christ in order to be able to detect what are not the words of Christ. So taking this to the pavement of our lives, we have to be living in God's word. We need to know our essentials, doctrinal statement here at EBC. We need to encourage one another to listen to and read sound teachers, sound theology, so that we may as a congregation be faithfully content and rooted in the words of Jesus and in accordance with godliness. Well, this sort of contentment in Jesus leads to a content life in Jesus, one that loves, trusts, and treasures him above all, money and possessions. This is where Paul goes next in verses 7 through 10. He is saying that when money, possessions, food, and clothing are in the proper place in our hearts and not on the throne of our hearts, there is godly contentment. For we, verse 7, brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. There are no many storages or bank accounts in heaven. 
So what does it look like to be content in Jesus and to have things in their proper place, earthly things, earthly treasures in their proper place? Well, it looks like being content with the food and clothing that the Lord provides each day. It looks like wise stewardship of the gifts that God has given us, time, money, resources. It looks like receiving accountability with how we use our money and resources for the good of the church, for the glory of God. Well, we should notice here in verse 10 that money is not evil, but the love of money is. And in the context, it is clear according to verse 9 that these false teachers and those who followed them had an insatiable hunger for money and that led to their destruction and ruin and that led them to be shipwrecked in all of life, spiritually. This is caution applies to us. Again, money in itself is not evil, but the love of money produces all kinds of evil in us. So fair question, fair question. Do we love money? How do we use money? Because that will expose whether or not we love it. Do we see money as a means of building our little kingdom or the kingdom of Jesus? We are a rich congregation compared to most of the world here at EBC. And how we think and use our money matters. So let me say this too. I am so encouraged, so encouraged by the hospitality and the care that we have experienced as a family and that I see in all of you in this church. When I hear that you use your money and your time and your resources to build one another up in love, to share and care for one another, it warms my soul and it's pleasing in the sight of God. So keep it up and don't stop. The faithful, contented heart in Christ, not simply individually, but collectively, is pleasing in the sight of God. And so may we be a flourishing church, faithfully committed to fighting the good fight of the faith together by remaining steadfast, content in Christ and in his word, with the Lord's help until he returns. And until then, let's remain faithfully committed to what matters most in this good fight. The big question is, what should we be faithfully committed to, first and foremost, in this good fight of the faith together? Well, that takes us to point three, a faithful commitment, verses 11 through 21. Commitment can be a scary word, right? It's been said that we have a commitment phobia. Just ask someone to RSVP for something like two months in advance. Woo-wee. But the mark of the faithful Christian, of a faithful Christian, is faithful commitment. A faithful commitment. And so in light of Paul's condemnation of these worldly false teachers and the sinful lust for money. Here Paul calls Timothy, a man of God and not the world, and the church, the people of God and not the world, and all biblical pastors and churches today, churches like EBC, 
to commit to faithfulness in three areas in these closing verses. And here are those three areas. First, to faithfully fight the good fight of the faith in Jesus. That's the first. That's in verses 11 through 13. Secondly, faithfully anticipate the appearing of Jesus. You see this in 14 through 19. And then finally, faithfully guarding the gospel of Jesus. We see this in verses 20 through 21. So first, the church is to commit to faithfully fight the good fight of faith in Jesus. Look there with me at verses 11 through 13. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Here, Paul writes, to the church like a commander writes to his battalion in wartime. And here in part is that battle cry to both flee and to fight, to flee doctrinal unfaithfulness and its fruit that we just saw in the previous section, and to pursue or fight for not just anything, but to fight the good fight of the faith, the fight against the world our sin, and the enemy of our souls with the spiritual weaponry of the word and the gospel of Jesus. This is the good fight of the faith. And so how do we fight? Well, it's not with military means. It's not with anger and animosity. It is not with mere good works or human wisdom, but with the characteristics of Jesus there in verse 11. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. True faith bears these and grows in these as we, verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which we have been called. Oh, Christian, brother, sister, if you have professed and confessed Jesus, then just like Paul did and Timothy did as we read there in verse 12, then you are in Christ and then you are clothed with the characteristics of Christ. And to be clothed in Christ and in the characteristics of Christ is to take hold of eternal life in Christ today. Isn't that amazing? So let's heed this good encouragement here and run the race, fight the good fight with eternity in view. And further, verse 13, to continue to wage the good war against sin and Satan with the good confession on our lips. That same confession that Jesus made before Pontius Pilate. And what was that confession? That he is king. Jesus is king. Can we say that together? Jesus is king. That's our wartime motto. That is the good confession. And we are charged here in the presence of God to confess our allegiance to him and to him only. Because there's strength and power in no other confession, in no other name, in no other king than Jesus. We don't have the power in of ourselves. We are not sufficient, but Jesus is And without his strength and power, our striving, as we sang earlier, would be our losing. We'd be losing. 
Our strength is in the Lord and not ourselves. And this is good news for weary, heaven-bound Christians in the trenches of spiritual war. This side of glory, isn't it? So are you fighting the good fight of the faith? If so, how are you fighting? Are you relying on your own abilities, merits, means of warfare with the news on in the background? Or are you looking to Jesus and confessing him, the all-sufficient king who is the strength of God embodied with the sword, his word in, in your hand? Oh, we need to hear this. If we are abiding in Christ, then he is with us and he is in us and he is for us as we fight the good fight of faith together. So look to him today. And let's look to him together today as we wait for his appearing. And that's the second commitment that we're called to here. We are to commit to faithfully anticipate the appearing of Jesus. Look with me at verses 14 through 19. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves, as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. How do weary, wartime Christians need to be encouraged? Well, it's modeled here. As we've seen, we need encouragement to persevere in the good fight by keeping our eyes transfixed on Jesus and nothing else. It's one thing to confess Jesus with our, with our mouths. Another thing to actually anticipate King Jesus on the last day. Maybe you're familiar with the battles of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Any fans in here? Whoop, whoop. But in the two towers, there is an infamous battle of Helm's Deep. And when all is lost and darkness is in the hearts and minds of the fellowship. A reality that the early church often faced and we face today, Aragorn begins to gather those around him before going into battle. But before he goes, there is this moment where morning comes in the film and the sun comes out and he remembers the words of the powerful Gandalf, look to my coming. Pastors like Timothy, churches like Ephesus and EBC, in the midst of spiritual war and weariness, can be so focused on the present darkness, eyes down, set on present momentary trials. But here we are encouraged to faithfully commit to lifting our eyes and anticipating the appearing of Jesus Christ. To wait well, 
We're encouraged here to wait well to be a faithful witness of Christ, keeping the confession of Jesus in, on our lips and in our posture, as it says there in verse 14, and unstained and above reproach until the day he appears. Brother, sister, we live between two appearings. The first appearing being when Jesus came, was born, a virgin birth. And the second is when he returns, which according to verse 15 will happen at the right time, at the proper time. And when he does, he will right every wrong and he will put a definite end to sin and struggle, terror and trials, death and depravity. Do you look forward to the appearing of Jesus? Do you long for his appearing? Do you pray for his appearing? Are you linking arms with others here at EBC and helping them look and long and pray for Jesus' appearing? In the words of John Piper, in his work, Come Lord Jesus, are you looking to his appearing with love and joyful expectation? Oh, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is king. And if you are a Christian, then you have the privilege and the blessed joy to do that today. To bow before Christ today, the one who is, as it says in 15 through 16, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, the immortal one who dwells in unapproachable light, the one who belongs to all eternal honor and dominion. Amen? Do you look forward to his appearing? Not simply the last day events around his appearing, but do you long and anticipate and desire his appearing? Where are your eyes today? What are you looking at today? Look to King Jesus. He is our hope and certainty and there is no other. There is no other. Well, the commentator Angus McClay points out that this whole section mirrors the previous one. Angus writes that in verses 3 through 10, we see the features of an unfaithful teacher or unfaithful Christian and the unfaithful handling of money. But here in verses 11 through 19, we see the features of a faithful teacher or faithful Christian and the faithful handling of money which is why Paul returns to this. See, as we wait for the appearing of Jesus, how we live and steward the good gifts of God matters here in the present. And so compared to unfaithfully handling money and resources and putting our hope in it, we are to fight the good fight of the faith by committing to not make our bank account our hope, our possessions our hope and certainty, but to steward our finances for kingdom purposes, and to store up treasure. Where? In heaven, as we wait for the appearing of Jesus. So where is your hope, and where is your certainty today? May it not be in your bank account, but may it be in King Jesus. And may we commit to faithfully anticipating his appearing. Well, the third area we are to be committed to in the good fight is to faithfully guard the gospel of Jesus. We see this in verses 20 to 21. Let me read those. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. 
these final two verses are a full circle moment. Back to the beginning of the letter. Back in chapter one, we read that Paul was giving Timothy an entrusted message and to wage the good warfare on its behalf. And here he calls Timothy in the church once again. In verse 22, guard the message. to not swerve into irreverent babble and contradictions and false knowledge. Again, similar to the language of verse 10 above. This is that shipwreck language. That was in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1. And so in order to not swerve and shipwreck faith, Timothy and the church are to guard the good deposit. So why is Paul landing this letter here? What is the good deposit? What is it? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is that message that was proclaimed so succinctly and clearly in chapter one that Jesus died to save sinners. This is the gospel in five words according to 1 Timothy. And now Paul circles around once again and he says that this is the message that we are to guard and protect with our lives. For this is the treasured good news that in the beginning God made all things and he created all things good and he created Adam and Eve and they were made good. But they rebelled against God and sin entered the world. And the wages of sin is what? Death, it's death. Not only physical death, but spiritual death. Death. And so, out of God's great mercy and grace, he sent who? The Son, Jesus, the one who lived sinlessly, never swerving from the faith. And he died on a Roman cross as a substitute in our place. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And three days later, after being buried, what happened? He resurrected in glory. And that is our assurance of salvation for all who believe. And he later ascended, as we read at the end of Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1. He ascended into heaven and reigns in glory. And he will one day appear again. And there's only one response to this good news. And what is it? It's repentance, turning from sin and false gospels that promise much but lead to death. And turning toward Christ and this gospel, this true gospel that leads to what? Life. Oh, we are not saved because we grew up in a Christian family. We're not saved because we go to church on Sunday mornings. We're not saved because of a childhood decision to follow Jesus that we may or may not have abandoned. We aren't saved by the good things that we have done. We aren't saved by simply being a good person. No, the work of Jesus alone saves. And if you have repented and believed on him, then like that, that finished work has been applied to you in the present and in the future. This is a gospel worth guarding. This right here is a message worth guarding guarding. If you have questions about it, I would love to talk with you more. I'll be standing in the back after the service. But brother, sister, repenting and believing Christian, this is the gospel worth fighting for. It is the center of our unity, our fellowship, our church, and we are called to protect it 
and to protect one another from false gospels. So don't fall back. Press forward and keep fighting for the gospel. I know many of you in this room are weak and wounded and weary. Wartime has taken a toll. And under the pressures of life, we who were once maybe running with Jesus are now walking or maybe limping alongside him. Jesus knows this. Paul knows this, which is why he concludes the letter with these four words. If you know them, say them with me. Grace be with you. That you is plural. Again, this is a letter written to Timothy, to a pastor, but it's written for the church. We must notice that this letter begins and ends with grace. Have you noticed that? From chapter 1, verse 2, to chapter 6, verse 21, grace is the final word. And we cannot faithfully fulfill our calling or walk in faithful contentment, nor remain faithfully committed without the grace of God at work in us. We breathe by grace, we live by grace, we serve by grace, we do all things by grace, we're saved by grace, we fight the good fight of faith together by what? Grace. If you are in Christ, then God's grace has been lavished upon you. And therefore, you have all that you need today, tomorrow, Every tomorrow after that, you have all that you need to know Christ, to grow in Christ, and to go forward in the good fight for the sake of Christ. Well, we should close. Returning to that question at the beginning of our time, what is and will be EBC's legacy in five, ten 25, 50, 100 years. I pray that it is faithfulness to God's word and God's gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that has been entrusted to this church. For that is the past, present, and future legacy of all flourishing churches. And so may we here at EBC continue to be and grow into a First Timothy flourishing church that protects the entrusted message of the gospel, that prioritizes prayer, Christ's payment for sin, and purposeful complementary roles of men and women in public worship, that is prudently led by Christ-like leadership and lives out the truth of the gospel together as a church, that perceives unsound doctrine and persists in sound doctrine, that pursues the cultivation of a culture of care for the whole spiritual family, particularly the sufferer and the shepherd. And that we would persevere in fighting the good fight of the faith together with the Spirit's help until the glorious appearing of Jesus on the last day. May we be and grow in this all for the praise and the honor and the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. 
Jesus, we're thankful for your work on behalf of sinners like us. And we ask that we would fight the good fight of faith, not in our own strength, but in and with yours. And to that end, Lord, we ask that you would give us what we have not, that you would make us what we are not, and that you would teach us what we know not for our joy and for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.